Welcome to the Vinny Rock Podcast. Podcast. I took the blows and did it my way. It's time. The Vinny Rock Podcast. The Vinnie Rock Podcast would like to thank the following sponsors. Core Medical Group. Core Medical Group distinguishes itself as a prominent entity in the healthcare sector, specializing in offering innovative hormone replacement therapy solutions, which stand as a testament to their commitment to advancing healthcare. Core Medical Group values building enduring relationships and ensuring that each interaction is tailored to meet the specific needs of the professionals and institutions they serve. Learn more now at coremedicalgrp.com. GMR Gold. The bullion box by GMR Gold stands as the pioneering offering in the precious metals industry, being the first ever monthly subscription service for precious metals. It manifests as a seamless and innovative solution for those keen on diversifying their investment portfolios with precious metals, making the acquisition of gold, silver, platinum, and palladium uncomplicated and straightforward. To learn more and subscribe to Bullion Box, go to gmrgold.com. Everest.com. Everest stands as the paramount independent outdoor marketplace founded by individuals with a relentless passion for the great outdoors. They are driven by a singular mission, to provision goods for every facet of the untamed and boundless wild, be it hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, survival, and more. So step up, immerse yourself in the diverse tapestry of outdoor life, and let Everest be your guide to transcending the ordinary and embracing the extraordinary in the world outside at Everest.com. Modern Gun School. Modern Gun School provides a tailored learning experience allowing you to study on your terms whenever and wherever it's most convenient for you. Their flexible open enrollment policy means you can kickstart your education for a career as a modern gunsmith immediately. Modern Gun School proudly accepts the GI benefit and vocational rehab, emphasizing their commitment to supporting veterans and individuals undergoing vocational rehabilitation. Embark on a journey of discovery and skill enhancement with their accredited program and carve your niche in gunsmithing with Modern Gun School today. To learn more and enroll, go to mgs.edu. Stay Classy Meats. Stay Classy Meats is deeply rooted in a reverence for time-honored traditions and enduring values. Working hand-in-hand with farmers and ranchers who share a mutual respect for these principles. Stay Classy Meats is not just a brand. It's a movement towards real food, a commitment to quality, and a journey to share a piece of Montana's unparalleled meat quality with the world. To place your order, visit stayclassymeats.com. But uh, welcome to the Vinny Rock Podcast. It's um, to be here. Oh, yeah. It's, it's cool to have you. Uh, those of you listening, this is uh, Carl Monger. Uh, he is uh, an incredible friend of mine for, for m- many years now, actually. I actually spoke at one of his events, and we've gotten closer ever since. Um, Carl was an Army Ranger officer and continued on his career. From what I know him as, was the founder of Gallant Feud, correct? Mm-hmm. And you're con- currently still considered the president. Is that correct? Executive director. Executive director. There you go. Sorry. And uh, we work close hand in several projects, and so I wanted to 
so deep. Like anyone who's listened to the podcast, for me, it's it's. I want to make sure that you guys are getting introduced to some of the people who've made impacts in my life, um, because since they're so valuable to me, well, why not introduce them to you? And so Carl was one of those guys, man. So welcome, Carl. It's nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's cool that uh, you move so well. I moved so close to you. And uh, I, yeah, I've left the hour drive away. Was it? It's pretty good. Cool. Well, it took like forty-five minutes. So not bad. Where do you live? Uh, area. I live in Trophy Club, Rona. Okay. I'm by the Texas Marsh people. So I'm not too. Oh, close. that's thirty-five. Right. So you're north of me even more. You're, you're closer to the Oklahoma border, right? Yeah, you know it'd be closer if there weren't a couple of lakes in the lake, and you have to go around the lakes. Yeah, and I remember that's what the speaking gaming was in that area, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Because I remember driving past that. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Well, we got to set something. We do a climbing program over here in Plano that's not too far from here. And, yeah. uh, and I try to get over here. We do that on Monday evenings. Yeah. And the last couple of weeks, I've had a Monday evening client that I'm shifting him to different days. So yes, yeah, so we can continue that. So, so tell anyone who's listening or watching, um, kind of, tell them about you. Like, I want to know mm -hmm. about you because I know some of your stories, some of it's just heartfelt right and uh and everything but you've been a guy that i can go to for a lot of different things and questions and you have you know a lot of answers and let's let me learn about you a little bit so tell me where did you where did you grow up uh, i was born in Heidelberg, germany my my father was in the army my parents embarrassed the crap out of me uh last year because i mean that super long story but yeah. my biological father walked out of my family when i was three yeah my I had a sister that was one and one that was not born yet. Yeah. And he just, he just left. You never figured and out why? He, he ran off with somebody else. Yeah. Uh, when he left, we were, he was stationed at Fort Riley. Yeah. And he was an E5. Right. And so we went on this cross country journey. I remember, you know, you don't have an awful lot of memories when you're three years old, but I remember him. I yeah. remember him being in our house. I remember the train ride that we took to Pennsylvania to live with my grandparents. Right. And uh, and, I, and my grandfather was an amazing guy. And for the next five or six years, wherever he moved, we moved with them. So right. my mom and my two sisters and I, we lived with my grandparents. Uh, my, I did not know this until years later, but my biological grandfather was a three-war veteran. He was World War II Korean Vietnam. Got his really? CIB in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, I found that last year when I was talking to my parents when they embarrassed the crap out of me, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but um, they gave me a picture of my grandfather on some island somewhere in the in the Pacific, and he's wearing an old beat-up uh, undershirt, fatigue pants, and he's holding a Japanese flag that's, you know, the rising yeah. sun with writing on it. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And, so he's uh, in country at that time doing that picture most likely, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. He, he drank himself to death in 1976. I never met him. Wow. He had post-traumatic stress. I've, I've looked at, I've seen his records. Yeah. And uh, he, he retired. So three war, three war guy, all three, World War II Korea. He was in the actual ground combat in Korea. And he retired as a sergeant first class. Oh, so... Cool. So, you know, he probably yeah, he he stepped up and down. Yeah, there, probably drinking incidents, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so, so my, uh, and the reason I see my parents gave me this is because uh, after he left, um, my mom remarried when I was 12, and my stepdad adopted me. So my last name changed from Vodder to Monger. So I was born Carl Vodder. Got it. And uh, 
my I grew up thinking that my biological father was the devil. He was yeah. his, he was his name would not be spoken in this house. Voldemort, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and I actually at some point convinced myself I made up a story that he was a test pilot or something, and he died in a crash. Yeah. And so if anybody wanted to know where my real dad was, I would, so I would tell him he died. And really? Yeah. Because I never I had zero contact with him. No. Yeah. There was no visitation. There was no. Right. No stopping by to see us, nothing. He, he was just like he ceased to exist. Yeah, keep going. When, uh, when I was 18 years old, he sent a telegram saying, happy birthday, and he missed it by one month. He got, he got the day right, but the month wrong. Oh, my God. And it's weird that he would even think to do that. Yeah, well, and again, no contact right. until I was uh, an ROTC cadet, and I was at Fort Riley going through advanced camp yeah and i'm uh sitting at the bleachers wearing my bdu uniform waiting on some boring class instruction to start and one of the cadre walks up to me and says there's a sergeant major behind the bleachers that wants to see you and i'm like i didn't do it yeah why why some sergeant major want to see me i didn't do anything wrong and i walk around the bleachers and it's i feel like marty but flying back to the future movie where you walk up to one of your ancestors yeah because you look Exactly like me, but white hair. Same build, same height, same was wearing BDU uniform. It was an eerie experience. So the first time you've seen, and we'll speak, we'll speak, just try speaking to the, the tip of that a little bit. Yeah, so I was, I was uh, 20 years old. Yeah. So the first time I'd seen him since I was three. And he took, he took me out to dinner, got me off post. We went out and talked for a while. And, and after that, I had, Sporadic contact with him. That was mostly at that time he was he lived in Denver. He retired and lived in Denver. And so anytime that I ever had flying to where if we passed through Denver, pre 9/11 days, yeah. you could go out to the gate and take people off. So he would come meet me and walk from one flight to the next. I'd see him for 15 minutes, and then I wouldn't see him for a year or two. 15 minutes, and and the, and the whole time my mom didn't like the fact that I didn't even have to make contact with him. Yeah. And it was weird because it wasn't really like a relationship. But uh, then he made some decisions that, and I found out that I've got two half brothers and a half sister. Right. And uh, I, I kind of got to know them a little bit, and then he made a bad decision and ended up getting divorced again. Wow. And, and when I heard about that, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Just, I'm done. And so for 20, maybe almost 30 years, again, no, no real contact with him. Yeah. Then my sister, that's two years younger than me, she, yeah, she, she, um, so my stepdad, my adopted dad, he passed away, it's been about 15 years ago, I think he passed away. And my mom had been his carrier. He was older, he was a World War II veteran, but never left the States. He was, he was in training uh, in San Antonio to be a navigator on a B-29. Cool. And the war ended, and uh, so he's 12 years older than my mom, and he was having congestive heart failure. He wasn't in very good physical shape, yeah. and so she was his hospice care for about a year, and he passed away. And, and after that, she was really lonely. She didn't, she didn't want to go out and do anything. Yeah. Uh, and so, my sister, two years younger than me, decided it'd be a good idea to have our biological parents have a cup of coffee together. And so, oh my God, so they did. <laughs> And within about eight months, they decided they were going to get remarried. 
Um, oh so they were, they were apart for, uh, say, 52 years or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and so now they've been remarried for, what, maybe three years? No so way. Yeah, so... I mean, that's an older decision to make. Yeah. What's the age of your mother currently right now? Yeah, 85. So she got married again at 82? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. How do you feel about that? Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was kind of hard to come to grips with, but I want her to be happy. Right. Right, so... If if he makes her happy and, and she feels that that's good for her, then I support it. Yeah. He and I had a very straight conversation. And I made them, they didn't like it very much, but I made them go to an attorney and have a prenup yeah. by together because yeah. my, so it's weird because my legal father, right, mm -hmm. is, is my stepdad, except my biological father now really is my stepdad. Because <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of weird. Oh, um, man. And so now everybody else, my, my parents have the name Vonder, but I have the name Vonders. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's it's kind of weird. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's one of those things where you learn to forgive and you learn to to kind of keep an eye out and make sure that things are good. What did but, he do in, in the military? What did he do? Yeah. He played in the band. He was he was in the uh, A Division band in, he was in Germany when the wall went up. Right, oh because because I was and and this is the embarrassing story that I, I was going to get to because they start pulling out uh, an, an old scrapbook that's got uh, instructions on what to do if a taxi pulls up next to you, like don't get in because it's probably a Soviet that's trying to kidnap an American dependent <laughs> because right because right. the walls going up and the Iron Curtain is going up, all this stuff is happening. And it's like, are we getting ready to go right into World War III, right. 1960 time frame? Damn. And, and so they've got all of this stuff. And then they pull out a picture of uh, a ceremonial thing. So he was like, in, in Germany, I guess you could equate it to like being in the old guard band. Yeah. So he's in the ceremonial band in, in Germany. And there was, after the wall had gone up, there was some event that was happening in Berlin. And so they had a train ride from Heidelberg to Berlin. And they're sitting there looking at this train schedule that they had kept. And, and my father goes, well, I think that was, well, I think you were conceived on that train. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. we're alive today on this conversation. And, and then, uh, and my mom says something like, yeah, the conductor came by, you know, to check on things. And he's like, oh, I see you're only using one of the cots. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of one of the more embarrassing in my life sitting there and people were just like, came we're having this conversation. That's fine. But, uh, but yeah, so, so he, uh, he spent most of his time in the AGR role. Yeah. He was a first sergeant of an engineering company in the Fort Riley area. And he, he was a uh, platoon sergeant in armor yeah. or something. So on the AGR side, they ping around, but initially he, he went in uh, to play the band. What made you want to go Ranger? Uh, initially, I did. My mom pushed me away from anything that had to do military because because oh yeah she he was her husband her husband and her she yeah. she did not want me to go military and uh, I had I was an athlete in high school but my mom was super protective like she wouldn't let me play football because I'm right. hurt yeah. and now I'm probably thankful my knees are <laughs> thankful that I didn't play football 
But what I did instead was I ran track and I did gymnastics. Oh, no so way. so that helped me tremendously with, awesome. with upper body strength and flexibility, that kind of thing. All the flexibility, which is now gone. Yeah, but it, you know, the strength that people build in gymnastics. Absolutely, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that paid off in spades for me later. I wish that there had been soccer then. I would have, I would have played soccer in a heartbeat, but soccer was an ice cold sport back in the mid 1900s when I was high school. <laughs> so so anyway, I, I uh, decide I'm gonna I go to Wichita State University. You know, go Ted Lasso because he was a, yeah. a fictional coach there. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm enjoying fraternity life. I'm studying. I think I'm gonna be an engineer. Right. And I'm sucking at engineering classes. So I'm not liking designing holes through wood and doing all the calculations and stuff. It was like figured out it was on a chalkboard to me. And I'm, I got my first D ever in my entire life in a drafting class. So I'm walking through campus and it's time for enrollment for second semester. And most of my school got paid for because I got scholarships nice. for based on high school performance. So I look up on the wall and I see a sign, a uh, marksmanship class. And I'm thinking, well, I need an elective, I need an A, I need to make up for the D, I can get an A in a marksmanship class. Yeah. So they had I didn't realize it was an ROTC class. Now, they had a class in college, oh yeah, ROTC. Yeah, yeah, and, and Wichita State, there's this old 100 year, year old amphitheater there and underneath the, the main floor, there's a rifle range. Nice. And they had match grade 22 rifles, they were Beautiful, oh, super expensive rifles. Yeah, and there was uh, a crusty old sergeant major that ran the marksmanship program. He was a, a Korean vet, tanker, and so he taught us how to shoot. And we had, they had a, a club that they called the Wichita Rangers, and it was a group of college kids. And they went. The professor of military science was a guy named Andy Kushner, Lieutenant Colonel Kushner. He was. Ranger Tab, Special yeah. Forces, uh, Vietnam. All the things. Yeah. Had That's like a, the top dog at the time. Had been a lieutenant on the DMZ in Korea. Yeah. Uh, just, he had store, and he looked like John Wayne. Right. He had yeah. the mustache, right? He's this great big guy, very charismatic. And uh, we do this weekend, they called it an FTX, but it yeah. was basically go out uh, by Fall River, Kansas, which is a gorgeous area. There's a reservoir and, and uh, it's nice wood. Decent. And there are some cliffs there. And so they did very simple rudimentary rock climbing yeah. and rappelling. And so I learned how to rappel there. And then they would do survival training, like how do you make a solar still to collect water? And right. how do you set snares and that yeah. kind of stuff? And we would all get our hammocks and make little huge place to sleep. And then when the sun went down, they'd build a bonfire. We'd sit around the bonfire and he would pull up, pass around a bottle of Jack Daniels and this <laughs> lieutenant colonel would tell stories. Yeah. And you know, we'd all sit there and listen wide-eyed. Well, after the first one of those that I went on, I'm walking back through the ROTC armory and he pulls me aside and he says, you should think about applying for ROTC scholarship. So he stroked my ego a little bit. Yeah. And so I applied for it and I got it. So. Army paid for three years of college. Nice. And when I signed the contract, had not gone to any military training whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they came to me and they said, hey, we have an airborne slot. And this was the summer between my sophomore and junior year. So I had just gotten into the program. So I, yeah. as a scholarship cadet, now I'm on contract. Mm -hmm. 
and they said, hey, we got a slot for like next month. Do you want to go? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to go. So I, 1981, I went to jump school. No, before you went to basic training or anything? Yeah, it was, uh, the airborne school was my basic training. That was, what? I had zero military training. When I showed up at airborne school, uh, I had hair that was down, like David Bavora's hair. Yeah. I had David Bavora hair when I showed up for jump school. College kid, what? I don't know what's going on. And uh, that, that wouldn't pass these days. Boy, right? I'm, I'm dragging my stuff up the stairs, <laughs> and and this, there was a, a captain coming down. He was captain for the airborne department, and his shoulders were about the size of this desk. You know, his waist is about this big, and he's not much taller than me. And he does one of those, and he doesn't even look at me. He just goes, "Cadet," and I'm like, uh, "Yeah." <laughs> Oh, and and uh, so I got my first official ass chewing, yeah, uh, there, and found out where the barber shop was, and I go upstairs and I I throw all my stuff in the room, and this was a summer cycle, so it was predominantly cadets. There yeah. were half of them were active duty army, but half of them were cadets. A lot of academy folks, yeah. And my roommate was a naval academy cadet, and so I go in there and I throw my duffel bag. I wasn't even a duffel bag. I threw my suitcase in the in the locker and I look at him and I'm like hey let's go get something to eat and he's like what are you doing <laughs> and I'm like well I want to go get something to eat and he's like you can't put your suitcase in the locker you have to hang everything up yeah and yeah, he's talking he's probably he, he's from a structured organization he, he knew exactly what he needed to do and so I'm like well where's the hangers they don't even have hangers for us and he's like you gotta go buy the hangers. And so, they don't even give you hangers. <laughs> I'm like, this is wow. this is supposed to be like a hotel or something. So was it at Benny? Uh yeah. No way. Yeah, it was at Benny. It was in the, the old Airborne barracks when they were when they were still the old white ones. I'm pretty sure it's the same ones I did. No, well, yeah, probably. Yeah, they've replaced them now. Did they? Yeah, I was there. I was at Charlie Rock or Delta Rock, Delta Rock or something like or Delta Company. I think I was. So yeah, mine yeah. was the 42nd Company. So you know they changed it over time. Yeah, the yeah. 42nd Company was the very first one. As you go into the rows of barracks, it was the first. Mine was too. The first set. Yeah, so yeah. we were in the same barracks potentially. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So so then I go over and I sit on the bunk, and the guys like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> And, uh, and so, of course, I didn't know how to make a box. Nobody yeah. ever showed me how to make a box. So I'm learning all of this stuff. Yeah. And, of course, I'm, I'm all screwed up uniform-wise. I don't know how to shot my boots. Yeah. Uh, so I'm as soon as we go out to formation, I'm always getting this up to the gig pit. It was Man, that's insane. Nonstop. That you never went to any kind of basic training. So you showed up at basic training with airball wings. Well, it was ROTC, so I went to summer camp. Oh. So. And on the ROTC side, you go through a six-week summer camp that teaches you the same thing as basic training. Got it. It's a different environment, right? Because you're college kids. Right. So it's done more. It's more like summer. They call it summer camp for a reason. Yeah. You know, you don't get yelled at. It's like you a gentleman's for push-ups. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're held to a standard. Like you got to maintain the barracks and you got to yeah. do. They rotate you through leadership positions and and all that. You do a lot of road marching around Fort Bradley. You get to rages or training or whatever. Yeah. So. So you start learning those basic skills, but yeah. So I showed up there with chump wings, and uh, yeah, and and I tried to get the cadre to send me to ranger school because there was an option where they said if you made it through the first two weeks of ranger school, that counted for six weeks of of ROTC camp. Oh, nice. And really? I'm like, I could make it through two weeks of ranger school, yeah. you know, why do that instead of six weeks? So, and and I had uh, this lieutenant colonel kind of take me under his wing and told me things. 
it's really funny because there was another, there was a major there who was a Vietnam veteran, and this Major uh, McNabb is his last name. Yeah. And Major McNabb was, he was a little chunky, great sense of humor, but always had a cigar in his mouth, always walked oh, around with a cigar. And I remember him pulling me to the side and he said, if you want to be a general in the Army, you got to be middle of the road. He's like, don't do any of the airborne shit, don't do radio shit, don't do special forces. This was, you know, two regiment battalions had been formed then, but still yeah. really new. He's like, don't do any of that stuff. You want to go just be plain old vanilla infantry, and you'll have a much greater chance of making it to the That's funny. Yeah, yeah, so he was totally wrong. Yeah. But, uh, but it was interesting that he said that. But what happened is the more of the things that we did, like uh, as I learned more about repelling, um, I talked them into letting us repel off the back of the football stadium. So I learned how to do free repel, learned how to do Austrian repel. Yeah. And uh, the more of that stuff that I did, the more I liked. And you know, I figured, well, that's if that's what Rangers do, then that's what. Yeah. I, then let's just go. So yeah. So so I uh, I remember everybody telling me, you know, you know, nobody makes it to Ranger school. The, yeah. the graduation rate is so tiny. You know, right. it's it's stupid to go because it's it's too much of a risk. Yeah. So when I get to I did commission in 1983. By the way, when I was at airborne school, we we ran in boots, boots and fatigues. We did not yeah. we did not wear PT uniforms. Yeah, we're now we're running shoes. Yeah, I'm I'm I don't remember. I'm pretty sure I was still in the era where they just wore boots and they ran two miles, three miles, whatever it was. I'm almost positive. Was we did all we did the five mile run. Yeah, boots and yeah, I don't remember our PTs ever. And I know things changed that time. I just can't. Curious about one, but yeah, I mean that's the old school. You see, I've seen the movies. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen that where they're just wearing the jump boots and, and, and fatigue and gone. So never. It's a different world. Yeah, different <laughs> world. It was the second class that had women in it. Really? So that was brand new. They they put all the women in one platoon. They didn't integrate them into the yeah. entire school, and they were at the head of the column. So when we went to to run, they were the first platoon in the. And then, mm. I'm sorry, they were the last platoon in the line to run. Oh, so they got the and so, effect. <laughs> and, but so what would happen is, you know, they, they do um, double time, and everybody's like, rrr, yeah. next platoon, double time, rrr, and then it gets, goes through five of those, you get to the end, double time, <laughs> <laughs> And so you get, you know, it was, it was funny to hear it that way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then I got commissioned in 83, went to after officer basic course, and... A uh, week or two into that, 16 weeks, if I remember right, a week or two into that, some colonel comes in, gives us a big brief about, you know, it's time to volunteer for ranger school. If you want to be a real entry officer, you can yeah. have a ranger tab. And and so I remember, I think the scariest thing that I that I have ever done, period, was signing that thing saying, send me a ranger school. Yeah. And I found out later half the class didn't sign it. Half the class did not really like to go. Yeah. And... So, so now we had a, a group that started training and running and getting yeah. ready for ranger school and uh, graduated from the Niftrasa basic course, showed up at, I didn't take leave, on straight to, damn, so all, we had about 20 second lieutenants and, and all we'd heard was rumors like you show up, you get thrown in, it's like going into a Nazi concentration camp, right? <laughs> You'll come out eight weeks later. Yeah. So we go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and we just freaking pig out and yeah. we drive over to the ranger at that time it's just called the ranger department oh, and it's all overgrown now if you go back to benning the old yeah old world war ii barracks where we stayed really? all that stuff is gone and uh 
there's a plaque that says from like 1956 to 89 or something, Granger School was here. But now you can't tell because the trees have reclaimed it. Really? It's like it was never there in the first place. So I remember we, we had this caravan of like 20 cars and we all go, we pull into the parking lot and we park and we get out, we're trying to figure out, you know, what are we gonna do now? And a captain, might have been the same one that yelled at me in airplane <laughs> school, but this captain comes out of one of the buildings and he's standing up on a, on the stair, you know, the, the flat part before you go on the door when the stairs coming down. Yeah. And he's standing there and all he does <laughs> is yell at us like, get your cars out of the Cadbury parking lot. you got to park down there. And so we're all running back to the cars. But like, great. Now we, you know, we really yeah, started this Yeah, now you pissed them off. Yeah, not realizing that it didn't matter what we did. It was yeah. going to be wrong. And so that eight, eight weeks ranger school, I started um, September, graduated day before um, Thanksgiving. Went straight through, no recycles. Good. Yep. Yeah, and then and then went to Ninth ID where I was a platoon leader. Um, my first battalion commander when I went in the Army was a guy named Glenn Hale. Glenn Hale commanded 3rd Ranger Battalion after he was my battalion commander. Oh, cool. Uh, well, I, I think he had been in 2nd Ranger Battalion as a lieutenant or a major, but I'm ignorant, right? I mean, when I was in Ranger School, the best compliment I ever got the entire time that I was there was when we were in the mountains and we were repelling. And I've done a lot of repelling. Yeah. So we get up to the top and I throw the rope back and I just fly all the way down. I get about 10 feet up, lock it back, rope stretches, my feet touch the ground. I let go of my brake hand. I'm just standing there. And the RI walks up and goes, which bat are you from? <laughs> and I was like, I'm saying we did He's That's funny. There's yeah. a, those listening, like there's this this thing in, in Ranger School, you have bat boys who have like a ton of experience of uh, combat, whatever it is, just a lot of training experience. Then you got the lieutenants who show up straight from wherever it is, uh, you know. It's a bunch of Dallas State yes, University. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and usually the, the, the single lieutenants are the ones who are kind of lost in the sauce when it comes to a lot of the things going on in there. So uh, it's kind of an inside joke. Of, it, they, the lieutenants are always the one kind of fucking up little things. And the regular town news are usually the ones a little squared away, so. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, so so it was a good compliment. While I was there, I was in mountains. We were, um, the Blackhawks had just been yeah. put into active duty, practical. And so we're in the mountains waiting on uh, helicopters to come pick us up for a mission. And we're sitting there in line waiting for the birds. And R.I. walks up and he goes, so anybody wants, want to know what's in the news? We're like, sure. You know, give us news of the outside world. Yeah. And he goes, well... Yesterday morning, Rangers parachuted into Grenada. We're at war, man. <laughs> Damn. And he goes, which ones of you are second lieutenants? And we're like, me? And he says, lieutenants are dying over there, so you better pay attention. Oh, <laughs> and he turns around and walks away. And we're like, oh, oh man, that's what I need rather than the Rangers. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. So got to, to Fort Lewis, platoon leader, and, and again, well, I had seen the Bat Boys in Ranger School. So how did that work? So once you graduate to Ranger Town, you're almost guaranteed going to get a chance to go to Ranger Town if that's what you want, or you it's, just get pulled into it. Uh, it's political. Yeah. Right. At that time, it was more. Well, I think it probably still is pretty political to get there. The the sta- I don't know if I could pass RASP two standards yeah. now, and I look at what they have them doing. Yeah, it's pretty challenging. Uh, but but when I was. In Ranger School, I'm looking at these bat boys and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if I can handle with that. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Yeah. And so I did not try when I was a lieutenant. Uh, I had some bat boys that the 
Black Chinook picked him up on one side of the airfield and dropped him off over my battalion, and I got one of them in my platoon, and he was a good kid. Yeah. And I had a couple other ones that fought like hell to go over there, but, you know, they, they were, like, I had one private that I think three times a week he would walk over there and just beat on the door and ask the Sergeant Major to when, come give him some injury. Yeah. Be a chance. I think he finally got a chance. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but, but again, I, now, now I'm focused on trying to learn the business of being a platoon leader. Yeah. I've gotten engaged, so I'm planning on going and getting married. And so I walking across the airfield, I really didn't even understand what the process was. Right. So I never pursued it. I enjoy my time as a platoon leader. My brigade commander is Barry McCaffrey. You know who Barry no. McCaffrey is? McCaffrey was Clinton's drum czar. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah he was the four-star that led the 24th Infantry Division on the big end run during Desert Storm that yeah. cut off the Army. Damn. Um, and he had two distinguished service crosses from Vietnam. He was Stud. he was beast. And he had one arm that didn't work because he had been blown up so bad in Vietnam. Oh, shit. And uh, he, he couldn't do any push-ups. He, he wore a, a black glove on his hand. kind of like reverse Michael Jackson. Yeah. Because his hand was all shriveled. But a phenomenal leader, and and I got a letter of reprimand from him because so I'm a rifle platoon leader for four months, and then the battalion commander calls me in and says, um, "You're going to take the support platoon, and this is a mech battalion." Yeah, and we actually had ITVs, so we we've got um, like the old tracks mm-hmm. that had. The hammer down on top for two missiles. Yeah, but we were pretending that they were strikers because strikers hadn't come out yet. Yeah. So the the brigade that I was in, the Ninth Infantry Division, was called the ITEC Test Bed, and so our scouts got the dune buggies. We were the first ones to get a big GPS box. Um, so we're what year is that? 1983, December 83. I got there, and so any of the stuff that the army was thinking about on a big scale for modernization of the Army would go to us and then we would get to use it. Yeah. And But we didn't have strikers yet. All we had were these one, 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 one 114s. God, my, my brain is like armor personnel carrier with a hammer hand on top mm-hmm. that we pretended was a wheeled vehicle. Right? <laughs> so when, whenever I went out with my platoon, we would draw range cards like we had a 25 millimeter chain gun on it, not uh, to a missile launcher. Right. So it was it was interesting to develop the tactics and, and to try to conceptually do that kind of stuff. Um, but I only had that for four months and then they made me a support two leader, which it, it was, I didn't realize at the time that it was, well, I, they picked me for that because that, that in a mech battalion, support platoon is probably the most important platoon that I'll call because you gotta have food, you gotta have ammo, you gotta have water, you gotta have fuel and the support platoon's the one that delivers it. And the support platoon had been, it was like one of those Hollywood movies where the misfits all go, you know, nobody, if somebody screwed up in the line company, send them a support platoon yeah, and a truck driver. Yeah. And so I get this group of guys that is just. The bad news, they are. Exactly. <laughs> they are. They are jacked up. And I was able to pull one of the best platoon sergeants from the battalion to come be my platoon sergeant. I had specific orders to clean the platoon up. And, um, I didn't realize at the time, but I think maybe it was eight months later, the the brigade did a support platoon competition to see who had the best support platoon, and we won. Yeah. But before that, when when I was training them, we went out and, and did a night, it was a night road march with uh, cargo trucks and fuel tankers. 
So I'm training these guys how to move at night, yeah. and they had they had never done it before. And we had to cross. This is at Lewis the uh, the Yelm Cutoff Road. It goes in yep. out the back, kind of yep. the back gate yep. of Lewis. I used to drive that. So middle of the night, we're crossing that road, right? And I had one of the old 151 Jeeps was my vehicle. So I, I take my Jeep, my driver, I tell him go, go up front, turn on the blinkers and the headlights. And I tell, I think I had my tombstone on the other side. So we had lights on the other side and I'm waving each one of the vehicles across and there is no traffic coming whatsoever. So I wave this truck and it's got a trailer on it across and he turns in front of me and his, the truck and the trailer, when the gap gets in front of me, I see headlights. And like five seconds later, that car hit the gap in between the truck and the trailer. And it was a, I think it was a Trans Am. And trim from the door hit me across the knees and the thing went off into a ditch whole top was peeled off. I went running after it, telling, yelling at everybody to turn on the lights on all the vehicles. And I get back there and this guy, like the top of his head is practically gone. His face is smashed. I reach in, I check, he's got pulse and my platoon sergeant is right behind me. And I'm like, stay with him. And I go get on the radio and start calling for help. As I get on the radio, about two minutes later, one of the gate police pulls up in their, in their patrol vehicle and he goes, Hey, did you see a Trans Am come through here? And I'm like, he's around that ditch right there. And, Shit. And uh, the guy who run the gate. Yeah. Why? Well, they did. Uh, the guy survived no somehow. Way. Somehow he survived. But they did an investigation, and because they wanted, you know, did I do something wrong as a lieutenant? Right. The investigating officer, one of the brigade staff guys, comes back and says, no, he didn't do anything wrong. Brian McCaffrey, my brigade commander calls me into his office with my battalion commander because he's going to review the results of this investigation with me. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, I see the investigating officer says you're not at fault, but hell, you let that, you let that drunk hit your convoy. So you're losing a month's pay as he signs it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> what just happened here? And he's like, any question? No, sir. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So that was... That was uh, it was an interesting experience. And then about six months later, I, I won the support platoon competition. And then a month after that, we had EIB. And I was the only officer in the brigade that got the EIB. Yeah. So McCaffrey, so my brigade commander, asked pin the EIB yeah. on my uniform. And um, so it was it was an introduction into accountability, responsibility, sometimes how life is for there. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm trying to figure out how Gonna have enough money now to pay for a wedding and yeah, you take a month all of that stuff. Yeah, and and this was my my fiance and I. I had she had been my girlfriend at college, <coughs> and man, I'm telling you way too much information. How are you? Are you trained in interrogator? What's going on? <laughs> I just think that's hot. Yeah, <laughs> usually it's the other way around. Yeah, I, said, I, know, I know, I know, I know. I'm just letting you spill your soul, man. Hey, I made sure I don't say something's gonna get me in trouble. No, I do. Every time I get interviewed, I'm like, hmm, I gotta think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me this, Ranger Town. Yeah. Because I know that's where your your career ended. You ended up deciding to walk away from the military at some point. How did you get into Ranger Town? How did that work? And, and tell me about your career as your yeah. time there. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, now I'm a company commander in the 25th Infantry Division. My brigade commander is uh, Dave Oley. 
who was the platoon leader or the company commander for the Lur platoon for the 101st in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Super well known in the in the old Ranger community. That was his, that was retired as a three star. Oli O H L E. He oh. was the G one of the army before the one that got killed on 9-11. Okay. He was in that office. They changed jobs like a month before. Wow. And his successor was the one that was killed. Uh, so Oli is my brigade commander. Jim Dubik is my battalion commander. Mm -hmm. Jim Dubik was one of the uh, first platoon leaders in 2nd Ranger Battalion, commanded a company there, and then he was an XO 1st Ranger Battalion. My first sergeant was a guy named Jimmy Akuna. Jimmy Akuna was a six foot two Hawaiian, half Hawaiian, half Chinese that was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was, Jimmy Akuna was an unbelievable specimen of a soldier. And he had been, uh, I think he was drafted, and he was a, a specialist on alert team in Vietnam mm -hmm. with, I want to say, the AmeriCal Division, if I remember right. So I got, I'm surrounded by all these Ranger leaders. Yeah. And, and when I took over, the company that I took over, um, had it was kind of like the support platoon thing. It was a misfit plan. Yeah. Like the the previous company commander was a military academy graduate that was verbally abusive to his chain command. He was a tyrant. He was a tyrant. Yeah, and and uh, the unit it was a cohort. So all these kids had gone to basic together, and they all came to the yeah. to the same unit together. And so now I'm the second company commander taking over this cohort cohort unit, and. Um, I remember I'm, I'm at the brigade headquarters. This was before Ole took command, so it was his predecessor. It was the brigade commander at the time. And uh, he, the brigade commander calls me up, and I'm working as the assistant brigade S3. And he says, hey, there's, uh, there's a company that's going to come open here in two months, and I want to put you on it. And I'm like, awesome. And he says, do you have air saltings? No, sir. So like, well, air assault school starts Monday because you can't command a company in the division if you're not air assault qualified. So oh, wow. You better pass. <laughs> so, so the following Monday, I went to air assault school and, and passed that. And then... How was that for you? It was... Air assault school was dumb because they make you run around yelling air assault yeah. everywhere you go. And I remember after doing the obstacle course, I was sore. <laughs> that was that was proof because I'm yeah. not Oscar course in a while. But other than that, you know, it's yeah, good. Was about me. It was one that most Rangers don't go to. I only went when I went to the reserve side of things and became a drill sergeant. Mm -hmm. Then like, who wants to go? And I was like, screw it, I'll, I'll check it out. Right. And in our world, yeah, the, the Ranger world is like, oh, you got bitch wings, right? They would call it that. So I was like, I didn't want to get it because I heard talk about it to other people. Yeah. Now that I'm not Ranger, yeah. I'm like, I'll, I'll keep stacking whatever I have to. Absolutely. And yeah. when I went there, I was like, oh, that was pretty tough. Two weeks of just peak. They just smoked the dog shit at you with goddamn time and that's when I was frustrated I was like the fuck <laughs> like yeah. I learned how to sling load but fuck dude did you so this was this was uh, the 25th Infantry Division does their own school oh nice on on uh, Oahu so you don't go all the way back to camp before mm. so it's division cadre and and because all any green tabber in the division is supposed to have fair saltlings nice. so so they they push them through and, and so yeah it's a lot of physical stuff but they really focused on all the not tie in it. Yep. And so you get a lot of repelling in there too, don't you? Yeah, a lot of repelling. Yeah. Too easy, right? Yeah. So so enjoyed that part. Uh, graduated from that, took command of the company, and took command of the company on, I think it was a Thursday. And Friday morning, I sit down with my NCOs, yeah. and I said, what do you guys want to do? 
And they're like, you, you want to say that again? What, what, you're asking us? Yeah, I'm like, what, what do we need to work on? What do you guys want to do? And they're like, nobody's ever asked us that question before. Okay, so we're going to, you know, I will develop the training plans, but you've got to tell me what we ought to work on. Right. So we, we leave with that. Sunday morning, I get uh, a phone call. The, the battalion's been alerted. Actually, the company was alerted. So it was my company won the whole battalion. Yeah. And we got alerted and we got flown to Fort Lewis for an external evaluation. I've been in command for two days. Oh, man. And, and you have so no idea what these guys got. Yeah. I, uh, no, but so here's this is why it's important, I think, to tell a story because um, we get there, we get, we land in McCord, run off the back of the C 141s, go through a gap in the wire, and now we're in. Uh, I can't remember now because it's been a while, but it's the training area that's right next to yeah, under the court, right? Yeah. So that was an area that I had been in a lot as a platoon leader with my tracks. So I knew the area. And so we move into an assembly area and we, we've got the company, uh, it's middle of the night, so they're all in a big circle. And I call the leaders in. I'd just been given a frag order that we're supposed to go do this 20 click in like a, a sake uh, is like a like a mock mission kind of thing yeah yeah and but not on being evaluated and you right. know it's like he's got just got here guys thanks and uh i get the platoon leaders with polar ponchos over our heads and and i'm like okay so this is the mission we're getting ready to move out what's the sop for leaving the assembly area and they're like what do you mean and i'm like Range of tab, range of tab, range of tab, range of tab, range of tab. What's the SOP for leaving the assembly area? And they're like, well, we don't, we don't really have one. Oh, great. Okay, so we'll go first platoon, second platoon, then come here, course, and third platoon. Okay, right? Okay. Okay, so they get disseminate everything. We go, we move out. As we go, I know we're coming up on a road because I've been in the area. Yeah. And they're not stopping. So I'm like, okay, let's stop for a minute. I call the platoon layer back and I go, do you know there's a road up there? And he's like, yeah, I saw it. And I'm like, okay, so what's the company SOP for crossing the road? And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I'm like, like, you know, security, yeah, let it run. Yeah. They're, they're like, oh, no, we don't have anything like that. So, okay, so it's like radio school. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Is how we're going to oh, do it. Man. So we're doing this the whole way there. We get uh, to another, we, we set up... Uh, an attack point because we're going to go hit Regensburg. Oh yeah, Regensburg. I know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and so again, it's like okay, so what's the company? Else? I'm like, I don't, I'm not even going to ask the question because I know we don't have one yet. So this is all we're going to do. So okay, so we do that. So we get we do the attack. We get all this stuff done. And they say we don't have birds to take you back for two days. Here's a whole bunch of ammo. Here's a whole bunch of ranges, and you got the mount training center. What do you want to do? And so I'm like, okay, we're going to shoot. We're going to do yeah, all this training. We're going we're to set all this up. So we get this. I grab one of my squad leaders, Staff Sergeant Evans, if I remember right. And he had some experience in, in doing building quick. Yeah. So, okay, so Sergeant Evans, you know, I, I had, as a platoon leader, I had been taught you want to push the training down as low as possible, right? So squad leaders are training their squads. Yeah. And, and company commander doesn't sit there and train squads. But I, now I've got this impossible situation where they don't know how to do it, but I don't want to do it. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, we're going to set up round rocket stations. So you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. So we get this rotation going, and I get, my RTO walks up to me. He's like, 
Uh, sir, I just got a call. The CG's on his way. CG's on his way. Okay, cool. When's he going to be here? He'll be here in about 20 minutes. All right. So give me the radio. It's the old Prick 77. Yeah. Throw Prick 77 on my back. I tell my XO, keep going. I'm going to walk down to the gate and I'm going to meet the general. So I walked out of the gate and we had this set up so they like train for an hour, take a 15 minute break, rotate. Yeah. Train for an hour, then rotate. General comes up, like saluting, telling what's going on. And he says, well, hop in the Jeep. You know, we come up to the thing. And my mistake here, I call him the reader. Hey, XO, CGC, we're on our way up. So as we come up, it looks like a freaking Keystone Cops movie because there's guys like running that way carrying ladders. They're running that way carrying ladders. There's all this, <laughs> all the, it's like a circus just came to town. And, and I'm watching this for a minute and my brain is like, I don't even understand what's going on. And after a couple of minutes, the CG's like, well, I know we sprang this on you last minute. You didn't have a lot of time to plan. Roger that, sir. So he leaves. I grabbed the exit and I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And he said, oh, when you called me, we were on break. And he said, well, old company commander said, yeah, better be sitting on your ass when the general comes around. So I told everybody, just do something. <laughs> and so they're just oh, doing something. And I'm... I'm yeah, I'm gonna choke the guy. I'm like, I can't even, I can't even believe it. But we're doing this perfectly fine. Just keep yeah. doing it. Yeah. If, if you had said, "Hey, sir, we've been doing this training. We're on a break. We got another five minutes. Then we rotate." Yeah. The general would have been. It would have been. Yeah. I, I don't believe when he got a you no know, gold star or something for the day. And instead, the guy's like, "Oh, well. And yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, holy crap, you know. Anyway, so now. We pull all the leaders together and we're like, this, this is not how we want to be, right? So I started developing all of them. And we started putting together an SOP and I relied on uh, Jimmy Akuda, who had been actually not only a in Vietnam, but he'd been one of the plank holder platoon sergeant for Green to the time. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, what's the, what do they do there? Because yeah. we're a light infantry uh, company. Yeah. We're not that much different than a ranger company. We get, all we can do is walk to work. Right. Maybe ride helicopters, but what we're gonna do is not much different. So what, what are yeah. we gonna do? So so we start putting on in all this, then Dubik comes and takes over the battalion. And Dubik is total push stuff down to the squads. One of the first things we, we had was EID. Mm -hmm. And all the way doing EID, the way I got my EID was round robin, right? <clears throat> go to this station, learn, go to that station, learn, go to that station, learn. And every week you just keep repeating yep. and then when it's time to train or test, station to station. Station to station, yeah. So Dubik's like, those squad leaders can decide who passes. So oh, we're going to do this. Squad leaders are going to be in charge of training. Squad leaders are going to be in charge of assessment. Squad leaders are going to award the EIBs. And then so company commands your job to figure out how to make that happen. So I love that. So yeah. we set this thing in place to do that. And at some point, I don't remember when it was, but at some point uh, Dubik calls me in his office and he says, Hey, have you ever thought about putting in a packet for a Ranger Regiment? And I'm like, kind of crossed my mind that I wasn't sure, yeah. you know, if I if if I was right for that. And he's like, I think you ought to put in a packet. So, cool. So I put a packet together, and uh, one of the things that he said, here's what you do: get all all your old battalion commanders. And he gave, I got access to the division microfish, so I yeah. can look up where they were. Microfish, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so no internet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what microfish is, but sounds. It's, it, it's yeah, it looks like super spy stuff now, right? But it's it's a little, it's like a negative film, 
that you put in a machine and it puts the picture up on the screen and then you move the cursor around this film thing and then it blows it up on the screen so you can you can look up stuff right yeah. so it's it's just I guess the you know, precursor for the internet only it's manual internet and so I look up all these addresses I put together a letter and all letters follow and then I start getting them back I get a letter back from Glenn Hale who said um, if Monger had been available when I came in at Third Ranger Battalion, I would have tried to get him. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know what? It never occurred to you to mention this to me before. Yeah, you know, I know. Very much. And so I get all these letters back. They're all highly commendable. I, I'm really impressed with myself. I put together my packet of stuff. And I take it into Dubik's office. And I said, sir, I got my packet ready to go. All I need is your letter. And he goes, oh, just a minute. And he opens up his desk. He pulls out his little personal stationery. So it got the golden dragon on the top because yeah. we're the fifth uh, to 14th infantry. And he writes, Buck, hire this guy, Jim, RLTW. Rips it off and he hands it to him. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm going to put that with this packet. Well, the other ones are like embossed, Department of the Army or right. stuff. And he goes, That's better than any letter you have in there. So I'm like, Okay. So I put it in the packet, put the 4187 on top of it, set it up, holy. Uh, signed approval on it. The assistant division commander said, no, you can't go. Oh, wow. Uh, a guy named uh, Dave Bramble. Didn't want to let you go. One star. He's like, no, he wrote, this, this officer is going to command another company in the division. So I'm done. So I'm like, well, at least I get to command another company. And then about a month later, I get orders assigning me to the 75th Ranger Regiment. And, and uh, Buck Kernan was the, range, the RCO. You made it out of threat. So, yeah, Buck had been Jim Dubik's company commander back at 275. And now he's the RCO. So, yeah, so that, the the politics of that, yeah. right, is is what got me aside there. Right. And, and I was extremely lucky because I can, of all of the captains that I served with at 1st Ranger Battalion, I was the best, but I wasn't the worst. I was, yeah. was somewhere in the belt, I think. Yeah. And there were a whole lot of other officers that were more qualified than me to go there that didn't get a chance to because the timing wasn't right, because their command wouldn't release them, because they didn't have a Jim Dubik to write a buck letter. Right. Right. So so I recognized and I was really, really blessed and fortunate to go. And I get orders on my desk and I go home that night. I turn on the news and Ranger Redview just parachuted into Fanmore. And I'm sitting in Hawaii with orders assigned me to the yeah. Ranger Redview. How did, you, how did that feel? Did you want to go, or it was a little like nerve wracking? Like, oh shit! It was a little nerve wracking, yeah. right? Because because I'm I'm thinking it's going to be harder for me now, yeah. because when I get there, you know they'll they'll have all gone to combat and and not the new guy coming in. So I I understand somewhat what a tablet C four feels like. Yeah, because. I, I get there, everybody else got a mustard stain, combat patch, yeah. CIB. And just being an import already is hard. It is. Well, and I wasn't a platoon leader in Ranger Regiment, so I'm coming in as a captain. Yeah. And a lot of the captains that were there had been platoon leaders. So, um, well, I came into it wide-eyed and kind of innocent. I showed up. I wanted to make sure I was acclimated. Yeah. So I'm coming from Hawaii. I go to a two-month school at Fort Leavenworth, and then I've got... Like two weeks of lead, and then I report into rope, right? Yeah. So it wasn't rip, it was rope for, for officers. Mm -hmm. And, but all the physical stuff is still the same. Yeah. No, it's the same. It's, a, it's still a kick in the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is August. 
So I'm showing up at Benning in August, and I've been in Benning in August before. So I what year is this? This was 1990. So I knew that it was going to be uh, challenging. Yeah. So I get there a couple of days early. I take part of my leave time, show up early. And Friday before I'm supposed to report in a row, I show up at the RIP PT field. I'm wearing the old green or the gray Army PT shirt with Army across the front. Yeah. In my gray PT shorts. And <clears throat> there's Rippies out there just forming up for their PT session. And I pick the closest one and I walk up and I introduce myself to the whoever the squad leader of those Rippies was. And I said, I'm Captain Munger. I start rope on Monday. May I run PT with you today? And he looks at me and he goes, Sir, I don't think that'd be a good idea. And I said, Why not? And he said, Well, I don't think it'd be good for these ranger these future rangers to see an officer fall out of a run. Oh shit. <laughs> so so I said, Okay, let's go. And and that was I could run. Yeah. And so we go out, uh, and I feel really sorry for these guys yeah. because we went out. It was by the time we were done, we'd done five miles at a six minute pace. Yeah. And we're coming up Heart Attack Hill from the airfield. Yep. And these kids are face planting, and I'm jumping over them because I'm in the back. Yeah. We get up to the top of Heart Attack Hill, and I think I'm got a heart attack. Yeah. And and at this time now, I'm I'm the old man because I'm 28 right. years old, right? And so I run up next to this guy, and I go, "Great run! I'm going to slow down and go a little longer." You know, thanks. Yeah. And he's like, "Roger that, sir." And he was pissed. Yeah. So they take off that way. I take a right turn. I go behind one of those barracks, and I'm like, that's <laughs> <laughs> for like five minutes. Yeah. Right there's an ego. Slow down. There's a little bit of ego there. Like I gotta keep up with these dudes. <laughs> it's tough. It's it's. Those were listening like rip and rope. The the PT there is is high speed, man. And it is like no holds barred. Like kick you in the fucking nuts. You better keep right. up or fall out. Yeah. And, and if I'd fallen out, everybody would know. Oh yeah. That would have got for for sure. So it was dumb of me to do that. But it was a good introduction because, you know, it, it got me set. So it turns out when I started rope that uh, I w this was the first rope class post Panama. Oh, so not only did I not... The casual Panama dudes? <laughs> yes. And, and uh, there were no other new captains coming in before me. So there were like three of us yeah. that, were, that were in this rope class. And... Uh, Finished that. We didn't get a job because they didn't have any aircraft because yeah. all the aircraft were still doing well with Desert Storms. Uh, Desert Shield had just started. So now I'm showing up as the Army is mobilizing to go over to yeah, to uh, to Desert Shield stuff. And I get to 1st Ranger Battalion and immediately I'm like, man, it's going to be hard to keep up with these guys. Yeah. And and as, we, as I showed up there, I had a couple of great mentors that helped me a lot but the entire time not the entire time say the first three months that i was there i was i did not feel like i was wanted or welcomed to be there and i was given the, the my first job at first ranger battalion was called ranger coordinator ranger coordinator is the junior captain in the s3 shop yeah. that does all the shit details oh crap. so anything that needs to be done that nobody else wants to do give to the ranger coordinator and the dot the the most fun thing that I did was I built the first shoot house that oh, cool. Ranger Edmund used. We built it over at uh, Fort Stewart. Yeah. And I got to go to the compound at Bragg and see how the big boys, how theirs ran. And yeah. got to bring that back and work with the engineers to develop it. And so that was that was a lot of fun to be able to do. Yeah, that. that's cool. Um, 
then we're getting a new battalion commander that's coming in. Uh, Ken Staus is going to replace Bob Wagner. Bob Wagner retired as a three-star general, ultimately. No, oh, not. Uh, the battalion XO was Mark Pentecost. Mark Pentecost uh, later commanded 1st Ranger Battalion. And my immediate boss, the, uh, the S3, was Kim Keen, who was the RCO when the Berets changed from black to tan. Yeah, to tan. So, and Ken retired as a three-star general. So all of these guys that I worked with, there's like general officer stars just falling all, yeah, all, all over, over all over these guys. And uh, has, has the Ranger coordinator, after the rest of the Army's going off to Desert Shield and we're watching, we're like, okay, we're, we've got to be ready because yeah. we're going at some point. And uh, Wagner and Pentecost call me in the battalion commander's office and they go, we, we expect we're going to be deployed here in about a month or so. You're the rear detachment commander. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. So that's so, so I'm like, the next day I went back in Wagner's office and I said, sir, I was in ranger school during Grenada. I'm, I couldn't go to Panama. Please yeah. don't leave me here. And I don't think that did me any favors because I thought they were, they thought I was, I don't know what the right term is, quarry hunting or yeah. or something, you know, yeah. and, and I felt it was the right thing for me to do, to go ask to not be left behind. I mean, I, I, I would probably do the same. But but I think both of them, I, I don't think they look very favorably on me for that. <clears throat> so then we're, we find out we're getting a new battalion commander, Ken Stouse is coming. Yeah. And uh, they decide to make me the S1. So I become the S1 as Ken Stouse is coming in. And one of the first officers that I processed was a captain named Joe Botel. So Botel comes in as the L&O. Yeah. And when Pentecost left, he wrote me an OER. And I'll never forget this. His compliment to me was, you did better than I thought you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he's leaving. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, I really hope I'm never going to see this guy again. Yeah. And... Uh, Staus uh, was amazing. Yeah. Staus was, he and I were almost like two peas in a pod. He took me under his wing and uh, he developed me. He didn't, he didn't belittle me for things I didn't know, right? So one example is the, the S1 controls what goes to the battalion commander for signatures. Mm -hmm. And so the first day that I was the S1 and Staus was in, a staff officer would come drop something on my, hey, I need a colonel signature on this. So I'd go, okay, and then a couple of minutes I'd go and I'd drop it in the colonel's inbox. And if he was in there or not, you know, I had permission goes off, so I'd go and I'd drop it in his inbox and leave. Later that afternoon, I got another thing. So I'd get that, I'd go and I'd drop it in his inbox. I'd come around and walk out, and he's like, yes, what are you doing to me? And I stopped, and I'm like, well, what do you mean, sir? He's like, you can't walk in here and just give me stuff all the time to do. I mean, I'm trying to get work done here, and you're interrupting my day. Yeah. And... And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Green folder, yellow folder, red folder. Red folder is stuff that needs to be signed within 24 hours. Yellow folder, three days. Green folder, doesn't make a shit if I ever see it or not, right? So put those, put that triage, that stuff for me. Yeah. And then once a day, give me those three folders. So I'm like, roger that, I can do that. So the next day, the assistant S3 walks in, drops something on, on my desk. Yeah, I need the colonel to sign this. I'm like... What do you need it? It's like, oh, I need that right away. Okay, that goes to the red folder. And he's like, aren't you going to go take it in there? I'm like, well, I'll take it in there tomorrow morning. Right. 
but it's important. I'm like, okay, I'll take it to there tomorrow morning. So now he's mad at me for doing this. Stouse was amazing because I'd drop that red folder in there and I'd get it back within 30 minutes. Everything signed. The yellow and the green ones would come back that same day. Yeah. But I, he helped me learn how to prioritize his stuff. Yeah. Right? And so what happened was everybody started getting things faster than if they just sat on the colonel's. Because right. it'd be like, hey, did the colonel sign that yet? I don't know what's in his FY. Yeah. Right? So it might be days before you get it back. In this case, things are turning around a lot. So Stouse taught me a lot. He also taught me how, at that time, the officer signups and senior NCOs worked for Ranger Regiment. And one of the first things that Staus did when he got there was he said, here's a list of captains. I want you to go find out if they're available, and I want you to get them assigned here. Roger that. And so I'd go find them and tell them, put a packet together. This is how you do it. Yeah. You know, you already got the battalion commander here pulling for you, so if you don't screw up, you're probably going to end up here. So he, he started building his team that way. I don't know if they still do it that way. I think they might do a little bit on the field grade side. Yeah. Maybe not on the company grade side. But at that time, I mean, regiment was only like 10 years old. Yeah. So so it's still kind of kind of learning our way into all of that stuff. Uh, it was still the rip-rope process. Uh, let's see what else was I going to say about that. Anyway, so I, I find myself as, as the S1. I get sent to Korea to recruit no way. For for uh, senior NCOs officers, right? Because platoon leaders coming out of Korea, they got to go someplace. They got experience in Korea, a better place than yeah. than Bird Ridge Regiment. So the three, the the Regiment S one and three Battalion S ones, we all go to Korea, and we get the royal treat. We we get the tour of the DMZ. I get to go on the north side of the. Panmunjom peace building site. So I'm standing in North Korea. I've got a picture of a North Korean soldier looking over my shoulder while I'm standing oh, on the damn. North Korean side. And that was a phenomenal experience. I'm on my way back. I'm in the Seoul airport. And one of the other battalion liaison officers passes me at the airport. And he goes, here, you get to get back in time. And I'm like, back in time for what? And he's like, oh, your battalion has been alerted. You guys are going to Kuwait. And I'm like, and this is... And, so ground oriented Jeez. in in what February March of 1991. I don't know. So ground oriented like in early spring 91, but it was still there was still stuff going on. Yeah, and and this is now December of 91. <clears throat> hey, your battalion, you guys are jumping into Kuwait. Are you gonna make it back in time? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, better. <laughs> so I fly from Korea back to Savannah. Couple of the pack NCOs pick me up, take me home. I get my duffel bag out, dump out all the green stuff, put on all the brown stuff, run to battalion, get there in time to get the the jump briefing. Yeah. And get draw ammunition. I mean it was full of light ammo, everything. Get all the birds and start heading around the world the other direction to go to Kuwait. We we land in uh, Madrid, change planes. Take off again and fly the border between Saudi Arabia and, and Iraq. Mm-hmm. We're doing uh, in-flight refuel. So I'm looking out the window watching the yeah. in-flight refuel going on. And then well, I remember uh, Dave Grange was the RCO at the time. And Grange gives us our briefing. And he says, we got enough fuel for one pass. The way the way that this is going, it, so expect one pass and we're gone. If we don't make that one pass, then it's going to be a no drop. So we, we break, and the jump master opens the door, 
and he turns back and he and he's like, "Oh my, what? Forty knots?" <laughs> but it was like twenty-five. Twenty-five knots. And and uh, yep. he's like, "No draw." And so now, oh god, crap! The pin is we're going to turn like we, they said we didn't have enough fuel to do a turn. Yeah, that like we're doing a turn. So we come back around, and this time it's like. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna do a turn. Yeah. We're like, wait a minute! They said we didn't have enough fuel to do a turn. So we come back around, and this time he's like, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, I've been on those jumps." We're yeah. like, "Oh, it changed that yeah, fast." It changed that fast. Interesting. Yeah. So, so I exit the aircraft. I was in the fifth bird. Well, those are like listing. So uh, he's waving off. Like, there's a hand signal on jumping, and the the jump master will tell you how many air, air knots, right? So, so that. How fast the wind is blowing. Wind speed. Yeah. If the wind speed is too fast, you can't jump because it's too dangerous. You're like 13 like, knots is first time max. Right. Time exactly. Required. And so, like, if if the wind is too powerful, you'll jump out and you'll completely miss the, the land zone which you're expected to land. So, uh, in training, it, it wasn't uncommon for you to go a couple passes, but like it's 20 knots. You're like, oh, we're not jumping. Then they go around again, like, oh, it's five. You're like, fuck, we're jumping, and it's gonna be windy as fuck. Like, they just want to get the jump out, so you do it, right? And so that's what Carl is explaining right now. Yeah, so opening shot, I look down, and all I can see are people being drugged oh my God. across the airfield. And this is shortly after the end of the war, so there's still craters. All the, all the bunkers are cratered in. Yeah. There's barbed wire everywhere. And, and I am flying sideways faster than I'm descending. Shit. And, and as, I, as I'm coming down... I can see that I'm going to land on a 55-gallon drum that looks like it's been shot full of holes like a cheese grater and run over by a tracked vehicle. So I'm getting ready to land on a cheese grater. Yeah. At, you know, going at a high rate of speed. And so I'm, I was able to plant my boots on it and kind of roll on yeah. the other side, knock the wind out of me, but, but I'm okay. So yeah. I, I clashed my chute. I got drugged about 50 feet before I clashed my chute. Guys are getting drugged all over the place. And one of the company XOs got knocked unconscious and drugged almost the length of the airfield before they were able to pull him down. We jumped 450 Rangers and we put over 50 of them in the hospital. Absolutely. From the job. That's not Doc Dodden. Do you know who Doc Dodden no. is? The name sounds legendary PA. He was a Special Forces medic in Vietnam. He's the one that developed the modern Ranger medic program. Oh, cool. So Bill Dodden broke his leg on the chop. Yeah. And I get my step together and I get over to the the talk assembly area, and I dropped my stuff down, and Doc's laying there, and he asked me, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I knocked the wind out, but I'm all right. I go, how about you? He's like, oh, my, my leg's messed up. But, and he had this real thick moss next to him. Well, I'll be okay, sir. And so, all right, so uh, we stand up to move out. He stands up and falls over. And I'm like, can I help you up? He's like, I think it's broken. <laughs> it's like, and you're not going with me. He says, I'm going with you. And he takes another step, he falls down. No. You're, you're going to the hospital. I had a similar experience. We had to jump into Yakima just right before a deployment, and we just knocked out these jumps. And uh, same thing in the past, like 22 knots, 30 knots. Then going around, was like three knots. You're like, fuck, bullshit. Jump out that motherfucker. I swear to God, I was flying sideways. Yeah. I hit the ground, dragged, and, and I just did a tumble and all that shit. I was like, God damn, that fucking. Like, you know how terrible that is. Uh, and then you hear dudes coming around, ah, blah, blah, blah. And one of my really good buddies landed probably 20 feet from me, and he. He, he broke his, his pelvis broke his, his whole legs tip fit you know I mean everything you think of he fucked himself up on that jump so bad 
And, you know, we're, we're right there trying to work with them and, and I'm helping the medics try and try and just work on them and remove his stuff off of him and just kind of check on him. And he's like, how are my legs? And I was like, I could, I, I didn't want to just say they're fine. And I said, they're broken, bro. They're, they're fucking broken. So chill, let the medics figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to lie to them, but they were fucking, I mean, they were all, all which ways you can think of. And after they went to him, I just started hearing dudes dropping like flies and you hear, ah, ah, ah. So I'm running around next dude. And buddy named Zagata was like, broke my ankle. And he goes to lift it. He's just like, not a god damn it. And then we put it onto his rug. I'm like, wait here. I'm going to go get a medic. And it was just like dudes left and right. were just breaking angles and legs and concussions. It's a fucking mess, man. So There's a video that uh, they had a bunch of VIPs. There were sheiks out there in robes yeah. that were watching this jump. No shit. And uh, somebody was video. And they're, they're using the old... VHS camera and so they're panning as, as a jumper's coming in and they get over here and the lens cap goes <laughs> the wind is the wind <laughs> oh my god and uh, and then you see the guy hit and he's just hit over, yeah, over, over yeah. yeah it was it was but I still get I think the last one I got maybe a year ago I had a ranger that reached out to me and he said hey you are the, the personnel officer on that drop can you write me a nexus letter for the VA? Oh yeah. Because what happened is nobody, yeah, nobody has any of that yeah. stuff in their medical yeah, records no unless they went to the hospital. Right, right, right. No, I get it. And it, as we left, as we're going through. Wait, so you got a combat jump. So that's considered a combat jump? She, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys get mustard seeds so, from that jump? No. No, okay. No. So yeah. but there's more, so this part of the story that I, uh, I'll tell you here in just a minute because it all kind of contributes into my yeah. experience at Ranger Regiment, where as we're leaving the assembly area and they're counting us out, there's two medics, like they're the gate as you go out, because yeah. we did a friggin' 20 mile foot in jail yeah. to get this place. And and they've got Tylenol with coating. They're just like yeah. handing them out, like, you know, it's Halloween, you're toward pre, you're just walking by the right. years on the way out. Um, we ended up, we, we did this long infill. Uh, through the night, we had to stay in marked lanes because we went through minefields that oh, they had cleared ahead of time. Stephen Barry was the battalion chaplain, and uh, he was the very first regimental chaplain, retired oh, colonel. Nice. Uh, he's he's come to some of our vet expo. Okay, so I've brought him in. Yeah, the phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Uh, he he and I, because on the S one, and you know, he's the chaplain. We're hanging around together a lot. So he tells me he's going to go take a piss. And so he stands up and he starts walking off. And I'm like, I reach out and I grab the back of his gear and I pull him back. And I shine my flashlight and there was my surface mine just like 20 feet in front of me. He was hitting right towards it. So to this day, I'm like, dude, you owe me your life. Save your life. So we get down, we go out, we blow up a bunch of stuff that the Iraqis had left abandoned out in the desert. Went, and we go back in. We make it back into Camp Doha. They put us up in a, a big hangar. And yeah. Now we have to wait for a day or two before we get birds to bring us back. Mm -hmm. So on the S-1, so what's the S-1 supposed to do? S-1's got to go talk to G-1 and find out, Ranger Battalion just parachuted into a combat zone. Yeah. You know, what documentation do I need? So I go in and I talk to a captain in the G-1 office and I explain, he's like, oh yeah, I know you guys are here. Like, okay, so what's the policy in theater? And he says, one day theater, uh, you get a combat patch and a CIB. And he said, you guys jump in? So yeah, it's probably a mustard stain. So now, the guy who did not make it to Panama 
is now the one that has to go back to the time chain of command and say, CIB must have stained combat badge when they've already got, and I'm the one that doesn't. Yeah. So I go back and I said, and I can't remember the field grade officer right now that I talked to. I thought it was a different one. Yeah. But when I wrote my book, I did the timeline and that guy was not there. Yeah. So I, she couldn't have been the one. But I go back and I said, you know, this is the policy. And the answer that I got back was that shit ain't going to happen. And I remember thinking, it's not your call yeah. to make that decision. Because if that's the policy in country, right, it's just what it is. How, how can we not do that for these rangers? And so we get back and, and I'm looking for what what is like no shit documentation proof other than a captain telling another captain this is the policy. Where right. can I find some written proof? And because we were in country for more than whatever the minimum number of days was, we got combat pay for that month. There you go. Right? So, hey, Italians qualified for combat pay for the month. Awesome. Give us combat pay. Okay, so I write the orders for combat pay. Guess what? If you get combat pay, that means you're automatically, you qualify for the, yeah. at that case, the Southwest Asia Service Medal, which was a campaign ribbon. Right. Which means with a campaign star because it was still an active combat zone. So under my own authority for the commander, I, I did a fine name roster of every person in the battalion and signed for the commander, combat pay, uh, Southwest Asia Service Medal with bronze campaign star and any benefits that might be associated with that. And boom, everybody gets a ribbon for their uniform, everybody gets combat pay for a month, everybody's yeah. happy, and nobody gets a CIB or uh, combat patch. I think there were some people that didn't appreciate the fact that I did that, yeah. but Stouse was funny because when I took the thing and I showed it to him, he's like, cool, you have to show me where it goes on my uniform, because not on the yeah. uniform. Roger that, sir. So uh, about a month or two later, they, they're moving people around. Joe Votel is mid-major, and he becomes the battalion S3. Yeah. And, or he had. I think he might have been the battalion S3 when we jumped into um, to Kuwait, if I remember right. My timeline's a little fuzzy on that. But he's the battalion S3, and um, they come to me and say, we're going to make you the battalion assistant S3, which, in my opinion, aside from company command, that's the best captain job in the battalion. Yeah. Because it's all the operational stuff. Right, right. And you got the captains working for you. Um, well, it's it's just, it's, a, it's an awesome job to do. So I, I do that job for this, this was December, January, February. I don't know, probably sometime in, in early spring I took that over. And October, the following year, October 92, we did a month in Panama. So we went through the Jumbo Operations Training School. We get back from that, and we get another alert notice that the battalion might go do a real-world mission overseas. Oh, shit. Something, uh, I've, I've only heard rumors, I don't know for a fact, but the rumors are snatch Saddam Hussein or snatch proof of weapons of mass destruction or right. something that's super big time. What year is this? So this was the end of 92. This was um, this was the end of October 92. So we must have done, uh, the Jumbo Operations Training School must have been like August. My, my brain's fuzzy on it. Yeah. But it was, it was October when we, when we did this. And it was, uh, the mission was so important that they brought leaders from the 3rd Ranger Battalion and overlaid them on 1st Ranger Battalion. Mm -hmm. 
So in battalion commander, they were buddied up. A bunch of first sergeants were buddied up, sergeant major buddied up. And this mission was leaving Savannah, going to uh, the air base that's in Salt Lake City, mm -hmm. reconfiguring. Some rangers were going to get on helicopters and go and, and uh, Dubway. They were going to seize the airfield at Dubway. Mm -hmm. And then we we're going to have Sumo 41s that we're going to follow on. They were going to jump if they couldn't secure Dubway, or we're going to air land after if the, the soft force was able to secure Dubway. Because of all of the extra people that are being overlaid, things got shifted up. Because normally, if the battalion commander uh, had the S3 with him, then I would go in the alternate talk. If the, right. if the battalion commander wanted the S3 in the alternate talk, then I would go with the battalion commander. So it's the system three, right? Yeah. I, I would flex back and forth. Neither the S3 or the system three went on that helicopter because both first and third range of battalion commanders caught on that bird, right. Keneally and Staus. Harvey Moore, the uh, first sergeant from Charlie Company, uh, Blaine Meshack, um, Jeremy Bird, and uh, am I missing? Now those were the five Rangers, and then there were eight uh, Air Force Special Operators that were on board. Twenty uh, Second Special Tactics Squadron Commander was the pilot, and there was another Air Force guy that was uh, the co-pilot. That Black Hawk crashed and burned in the Great Salt Lake. And it killed 12 out of 13 on board. So the, the co-pilot's the only one that survived. And he survived because he was thrown clear of the wreckage. And Doc Donovan and a couple other rangers got in a little inflatable raft. They were in a follow-on bird. They landed, got an inflatable raft dropped from one of the CSAR birds, and they rode out in flaming wreckage and found the pilot in Brian Ben. And it was, it was a horrible, horrible night, driving rainstorm. Because people had shifted around at the last minute, we did not know who was on that bird until we got back to Hunter Army Airfield and did a nose count. And, and you know, I knew the battalion yeah. commander was on that bird, but we didn't know all of them until we had verified who did not make it back. And the next couple of weeks was just, I mean, you want know, to talk about a cut punch and a nut kick and yeah. anything that could possibly happen. It was absolutely horrible. And, um, one of the things that happens after that is, you know, you've got to replace the battalion commander. But you can't be a ranger battalion commander until you've commanded a ranger battalion someplace else, or yeah. a ranger battalion and an after battalion someplace else, right? You can't just pluck the next guy mm -hmm. and put him in. And there wasn't anybody that was far enough forward in the queue. So Mick Bednarik, who was the DCO, lieutenant colonel at the time, he came in, he was our interim battalion commander. Jeff Bannister was the S1. He had followed, I'm, I'm sorry, Jeff Bannock. Now, listen up. Steve Bannock was the S1. Jeff Bannister was the S4. Steve Bannock uh, was, became the third regiment battalion commander on the jump into Afghanistan, Lab 11. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Bednarik comes in. He's the interim battalion commander. And he stays there for about four months while they sort out bigger stuff. Ken Stouse had written me an OER that said I was going to command P Company 175. Then he got killed. Bednarik comes in. Bednarik is there long enough. 90 days is long enough to write an OER. So he writes me an OER as he's leaving at the four-month mark, but not going to command P Company 175. The permanent battalion commander comes in. It's Mark Pentecost, the guy that I really didn't get along with. Yeah. The guy that had said, you did better than I thought you were going to do. Yeah. And, and now he's coming back and up like... It just, my senses were just like, this is probably not going to be good. And so 
he came back and about four months after, I'm within a month of taking command of B Company. Kirk Fuller was the B Company commander at that time, retired as a two-star. Uh, Pentecost calls me in the office, me and Joe Botel walk in there, and he says, I'm giving command of that company and Jeff Pastor, you know, I got command of company. This is like, we started printing invitations, yeah. print, all that stuff. And I'm absolutely crushed, right? So I go back, I go back home, I talk to my wife and my starter wife. And, and I remember she's like, her exact quote was, how can they shit on us like this? And I'm like, he's a Ranger Battalion commander and basically do anything he wants, yeah. right? And if he doesn't want me, then I don't want to work for somebody that doesn't want me. Yeah, it sucks, but... Now in the back of my mind, I'm like, I've got two OERs that send my command to a ranger company and then I don't. Yeah. I'm never gonna command a battalion. You yeah. know, my, my career is probably trashed right now. I made the mistake of not reaching out and talking to any of my mentors. I didn't talk to Dubik, I didn't talk to Bitneric, I didn't yeah. talk to any of those guys, Hale. And I went in and uh, this, in the pre-internet days, battalion overnight, the Cabo guys would staff this little room where they would get faxes all night long from yeah. various places around the world. And they would organize, some of the faxes were classified, some were not, but they would organize them into this briefing book for the staff officers. And there was an S1, S2, S3 section. So it would circulate around, the tank commander would get it first, and then as the assistant S3, I'd be like the fourth or fifth person to get it. So I get the book, I open it up, and in the G1 section, there was a notice that the Army had reopened the voluntary separation and send program for captains and buyer group. Two-week window, $200,000 to get out. $200,000 to get out? $200,000 broken down into annual payments over 20 years. So $10,000 a year yeah. in 20 years. So I'm like, okay, God, I guess, you know, this it's nice to send me a, yeah. a message, give me a little parachute here. So that day, I put a 4187 together. I had... I had no remaining obligation. I, I had served all of the time that I had to serve. So yeah. I was continuing at my own. If I got promoted or got reassigned, I'd incur more time. Yeah. But but at that point, I was up. And so I remember calling the assignments officer in D.C. and asking him, what are my options? And he's like, well, you're probably a year out from going to command general staff. So we can send you to Korea for a year. Yeah, no. and I'm like, I've had a ranger battalion for three years. I yeah. got two young daughters. I'm not going to Korea for a year. So he's like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, well, I know what to say. I'm going to drop this pack and I'm going to yeah. get out of the Army. And so within two weeks, I'm on terminal leave. Still had an iron tight haircut. Yeah. Trying to figure out which end is up. And it was, it was, uh, you know, talk about demasculating. Yeah. Right, demoralizing, having your dignity taken away from you, feeling like I remember as I out processed, there's a, a female spec four in the division G1 office, and I have to get her a rubber stamp on this. And I mentioned to her, I said, I want to make sure in my packet, because I parachuted with the first train to be tying into a combat zone, I want to make sure that's documented in my packet. And she had a combat patch from the 24th Infantry, and she looked at me, and she went, like that. And I, what can I do about it? I'm, I've resigned from behind I'm getting out. And that, I mean, it was, you know, kick me in the nuts one more time, please. Yeah, I'm on my way out. So I'm trying, as I get out, I'm trying to look for a civilian job. Yeah. 
I'm not going to get that first of the annual checks for about eight months. So that whole transition piece for me was absolutely horrible. Yeah. It was, it was not good. And over the first couple of years, I, I went through several jobs and my values and the places I tried to work didn't align. Yeah. You know, it was, you recognize that you can make a lot of money someplace, but you have to do things that you don't want to do yeah. to be there. You have to work with people you don't want to work with to be there. Yeah. And so uh, that was, it was a diff very difficult period for me. Yeah. I went through trying to figure that out for a while. Well, well now, you know, fast forward to now, you, your life is 100% dedicated to that. I got to tell you a little bit of the rest of the story. Please. Yeah. So, uh, I, about a year later, I get, I get a phone call. I think it's a phone call from one of the old packing CEOs. And he goes, hey, guess what? And I'm like, what? And he said, you've got a combat patch. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean i got a combat patch? And he says, well, the RCO just signed orders awarding the right shoulder combat school to all the Rangers who made that jump. And he said, because you put together a binding list, it, we know everybody that gets one. So I was like, well, that is freaking awesome. I was still, I was doing reserve time at some point. Yeah. So that somebody yeah. thought I'd go to the reserves wearing a combat pants. That's cool. So, so yeah, so I got orders for it. So they never give you your jump, though. Didn't get the jump, didn't get the CIB. So how can you be half pregnant? I, yeah, I don't right? understand how that works. It's yeah. like yeah, maybe someday, 100 years in the future, they'll come back and they'll say. And, you know, every time I go to regiment, and they're like, the glorious history of the Ranger Regiment, yeah. and they always skip right over that part. I'm like, but, but, but we jumped. <laughs> Interesting. So, so I, uh, I, I'm struggling trying to find civilian employment. And a guy named Bill Cooper, who had been in ROTC with me, yeah. he, he did the middle-of-the-road infantry stuff. Maybe he wanted to be terrible. Yeah. But <laughs> he, he became an infantry officer, and, and he really had his plan. He, he commanded a company Bradley's in Germany, and then he got out. Yeah. He got out before any Desert Storm stuff. And, and I don't know, it was maybe 88 or 89 when he got out. But he came back to Wichita, Kansas, where we'd grown up. And he wanted to work in the construction equipment industry. He had relatives that did that. He knew he could make money there. And so he got hired on as their uh, service manager. So he's in charge of the maintenance bay. So right. So he... He'd been a mortar platoon leader in a company XO, so he knows all about mortar pools and all the stuff. So fits right in with him. Uh, as I leave the Army and come back, he gets promoted to be a sales guide for this company. Yeah. So now 1990, 1993, 94, 95, he's making $100,000 a year. Oh. And he's making big bucks selling motor graders and bulldozers and stuff like yeah. that. So he comes over sees me at my sorry ass job, picks me up and takes me lunch, like a lot. And he always pays for lunch and yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's always talking about how, how much he loves his job. About a year later, he comes, takes me lunch and he says, they're promoting me to be the branch manager and I need to hire a sales guy and I want to hire you. And I'm like, dude, I, I've never run a tractor. You know, I don't know iron. Uh, I bought a car before, so I don't particularly care for salespeople. So I don't know. I don't know if that's the right fit for me. And he said, in the Army, you demonstrated discipline, the ability to learn, and integrity. And if you want to take a chance on this, he said, those, those things will help you be successful. And he said, and I will help you be successful. So I quit my job, and I went to work uh, at a construction equipment company. 
And I worked for him in a couple of different places because he, he left from there and went to United Rails, where yeah. he ultimately became a district manager. And I ran a United Rails branch. And I was doing that when I led a band. <clears throat> and um, well, I remember seeing on the news that Joe Votel was now the Ranger Regiment Commander and Steve Vanek was the third Ranger Battalion Commander and they just parachuted in Afghanistan yeah. eight years after I quit the team. Yeah. And that's the way I looked at it. I quit the team. I, I, I didn't reach out to my mentors. My feelings were I quit the team. My self-confidence was destroyed. And so I did not go throw myself into Ranger reunion stuff. Yeah. Because I felt like they'd be like, why aren't you here? Right. right. You quit the team. Why are you hanging around? And well, I was still in the reserve system, but I was inactive. But I had access to email. And so I did a email to Joe Votel. And I said, I'm proud. I'm jealous. I wish I could be there. Please pass along the thanks of a grateful nation to you and everybody that's there. Two days later, he responded to me from Afghanistan. And... So we reconnected my email, talked a little bit, and the next thing I know, I get an envelope in the mail inviting me to come to the Ranger Regiment Change Command, July 2003. And um, were you there? No, no, I got in in October. Is when I got into the military. Okay. So, so time lost. So, hey, the RCO that jumped into combat yeah. invites you to come to his Change of Command, freaking go to his Change of Command. Yeah. So I go, but I'm like, and I was going through divorce at this time. My life still was not very stable. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to stand in the back. I'm going to take a couple of pictures. And I'm going to leave before anybody accuses me of, of being someplace I shouldn't be. Right. And as I walk up to the back of the bleachers, there's a young ranger that has a clipboard. And he sees me walk out. And he goes, sir, what's your name? And I said, son, I'm not on your list. I'm just going to go hang out over here, take some pictures, and I'm going to leave. Yeah. And he insisted on knowing my name. And I told him, and he looked at his clipboard, and he goes, Baba, you're on the list. Follow me. <laughs> and Votel had put a seat in the center in the front row. There were there was a senator there, there were a bunch of generals there, and then there's Carl sitting in the middle. And it was like he he wiped all the other stuff away. He he said, It's The power in the act. Gene, course of my life. <clears throat> because I was able, now I had, I had the backing of the RCO. The validation. I had the validation. I was part of the team still. So I felt it was okay for me to go talk to people. And I started talking to them. And I started, I could see now, I, it had been 10 years now since I got out almost to the day. And I, I have an artificial right hip. The VA says it's not service connected. Right. I had hip pain the whole time I was in, but I want to do ranger shit. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go to the medics and go to the doctor and get profile. <clears throat> I've got, I just had an x-ray last week at the VA. They say I have severe degenerative disc disease in my L5S1. Yeah. And it's it's painting the boat all the time, and that's like VA's like not sort of connected. Right. It's because you don't complain about it while you're there. Um, I'm fortunate that I do have conditions that the VA recognizes, but it's by luck that they're in my file, not yeah because of anything else. So I'm looking at these guys and they're lipping and they you know they got all this back pain and stuff going on, 
So I'm like, they're going to do the same thing because they're not reporting it. And, and the guys are pranking themselves under the table because I know they don't want to go talk to anybody about what they're going through. Guys are talking about mama's left them. They're going through a divorce. And some of them are like, yeah, I'll probably get out, but I got no idea what I want to do. Yeah. And so I left there and what I had, what I felt was a mission to try to help them not screw up like I screwed up. Yeah. And because some of it was going back to being a company commander where I want to take care of soldiers. And so I started using every available, I used MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> Any available <laughs> online tool that I could find, I started setting up groups for rangers. And when a ranger would come into the group, I would say, uh, oh, okay, that's one battalion, what are you at? Okay, what platoon were you at? What's third stands of the Ranger Creed? Yeah. Right? So I would verify who they were, and then I would say, where do you live? Chicago. Uh, you're going to school? Not yet, but I'm thinking about it. What are you doing for work? Well, you know, I'm working a crappy job. How's your marriage? Oh, you know, it's okay. How much do you drink? And so I would just start my life. You tell me you drink two beers a night, I'd Alexis it. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't bullshit me because I understand. And you're probably going through a divorce and you know, you're so, so I'm helping them. I'm coaching them in a way that I felt that I'd never originally got coached, but now I got helped by this guy that took, put me in the construction job. So now I can use that to help yeah. talk to them about how they can do better in their jobs. But when I, if I found a ranger in Chicago, I would find another ranger in Chicago that now owns a business or they're an attorney or a CPA or whatever. And I would say, Hey, Joe, Bill just showed up there, connect with him, buy him lunch, find out what's going on, and freaking be his ranger buddy. And so I just started making all these connections. And from 2003 to uh, 2009, that network grew to be 1,000 rangers. And in 2009, the economy took a big downturn. I was running a division of a private general contractor, big crane division that did a couple million a year of revenue. And this family-owned business lost a big construction project because of the aircraft industry. Do you remember when the auto execs flew their private aviation to DC to testify about how bad the auto industry was and they needed bailouts from the government? No. They flew their jets. They flew their Learjets to testify to Congress and then the next day, anybody that flew a Learjet was a bad person. And my company was building a brand new jet facility for Cessna aircraft and Cessna canceled a $200 million construction project, oh which goodness. meant I got laid off. Yeah. So now I'm like, well, crap, what am I gonna do now? You know, I, I, but I'm spending all my time helping guys connect. So Bill, the guy that helped me get into construction equipment, he said, hey, this connection stuff that you're doing, why don't you make it a nonprofit? I remember he and I are sitting in a, at a little tavern having a beer, and he reaches into his wallet, he pulls out another dollar bill, slides it across the table, and he says, here's your first donation. Go get started. And so I put together a little team. We formed Gallup Few 2010 as a nonprofit. And we started trying to mimic Big Brothers, Big Sisters, initially for Rangers. Yeah. And then Bill's like, I'm not a Ranger. What are you doing for veterans like me? I helped you, right? Yeah. So, okay. So we'll we'll see if we can do, we'll help anybody anywhere, anytime. Yeah. Right? And so we became a triage group that somebody came in. If they need a job, we're going to help you find a job. If you need counseling, we're going to help you find a counselor. If you need money to pay your phone bill so you get a job, we're going to go find some money to help you keep your phone on. Yeah. And so we were just running around with that Keystone cost, running around trying to put out fires everywhere we went. And, and that was okay for a year or two. Yeah. But 
I was not making any money, right? So my wife has a pretty good job. She's making, she's, she makes way more than I do now. But at the time, she wasn't making that much. But we're putting groceries on a credit card. And she's yeah. starting to put pressure on me to, to figure something out. Well, around that time is when I get a phone call from a squad leader for Ranger Battalion. And he says, uh, I got a Ranger here that his wife is leaving him. And so he's decided he's leaving the Army. And I, maybe you can help him. So I get on the phone. This is like the day before Thanksgiving, uh, 2011. Corey Smith, Corporal Corey Smith from 3rd Ranger Battalion. And, and uh, Corey's like, yeah, I, he said, I came home from my last deployment and found a note. My wife took our one-year-old daughter, moved home to Minneapolis and said, you can be a dad or you can be a ranger, you pick. Mm. And so he's like, I still had six months on my enlistment. So I got to go in and say, no, I'm not going to reenlist. No one, they're all going to go back. Yeah. So now I'm quitting the team. And... He says, well, I'm processing by running at night. So go do ranger stuff during the day, go home and run 10 miles at night because he doesn't want to sit in an yeah. empty apartment. So he starts having a dream that he's running and he's talking about military transition because he had some of his other ranger buddies that were struggling after they got out. And then he shares that dream with his pastor. And his pastor's like, hello, McFly, you know, maybe God's telling you something. So Corey had come up with this idea that he was going to run from Columbus, Georgia, to Indianapolis, and he was going to talk about transition. He was going to raise awareness about military transition. So his squad leader thought maybe I could help him because I, I had a nonprofit that he knew helped trainers. Yeah. So I'm asking Corey, okay, so how far is that? And he says, 565 miles. Yeah. Like, okay, what's your plan? And he says, I don't know, 20 miles a day until I get there. I'm like, okay. But what? But what's your plan? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mom's gonna follow me in the car, and I'm like, okay. What's your budget? Now my S3 hat's coming yeah. on. What's your budget? What's your timeline? Where you gotta stay? Logistics? How many calories you need? What about gear? So doing all this, and he's like, uh, <laughs> had thought about all that stuff. I, you just so so I said, I'll, I'll help you plan this out, but in return, I ask that we can create a campaign, try to raise some money, get some awareness because. You know, if you're running through uh, a little Northwood, Georgia, and nobody, you're just a guy jogging if nobody knows why you're there, right? Yeah. So somebody's got to make phone calls and, and arrange press and all this stuff. So is that yeah. it? And he said, yeah. So I, I put a team together to start making phone calls and doing stuff. And one of the people that volunteered is Gold Star Mom Sue Penny. Oh. So Sue's son, uh, John Penny, Ranger Medic, mm -hmm. he was he was killed on my birthday in 2010. Yeah. The same year this all started. So it's, all this stuff is coming together. But but so Sue uh, and her son posthumous Southern Star. So uh, Sue says, I'm gonna make phone calls. So she gets Robin Mead from CNN on the phone. Oh, and Robin Mead does two pieces on Corey while he's doing the trip. And we get a lot of attention. Uh, the congressman from Indiana calls me up, or they did, and said, hey, we want Corey to go to the State of the Union address and sit in the balcony. So we took Corey off the route, got him a suit, bought him a $1,000 plane ticket, put him in a hotel in D.C., used half the money we raised to get him there. Yeah. But he got to sit in the freaking State of the Union address and listen to Obama's last State of the Union address. That's bad. Um, the, he 
develops a stress fracture from running 20 miles a day. He was already hurt before he got out, yeah. which he never reported <laughs> to the medics. But uh, he wouldn't quit, so he walked. And then we got him a bike. So he ran, he walked, and he biked. All 565 miles. And I joined him for the last mile of the trip, went to Indianapolis. The mayor of Indianapolis declared it Gallo Few Day, did a big proclamation. That's cool. Corey's parents had his daughter in the square when he comes around in because his wife liked him anyway, right? But, I mean, it was it was this amazing thing. And Corey's transition is another story. Corey's yeah. not a tardy oh, nice. in Indianapolis, but he was homeless for a while, and he was too hard-headed to let me know that he was struggling because he was too embarrassed yeah. to admit that he was failing. Um, so about six months later, we go, hey, we need to start planning a fundraiser. Who are we going to find that's going to run 565 miles? Because we raised $12,000 last year. Yeah. Now let's do it again. I couldn't get anybody to volunteer. So uh, I got the idea that we should make it a team event. Can you and nine of your friends, 10-person yeah. team, do what Corey did? Month of February, 565 miles divided by 10, 56 miles, 28 days is two miles a day. So can you average two miles a day every day in the month of February? And can you ask people on social media to give money? Uh, the first year that we did it as a team of that, we raised $106,000. And it cost about eight to six. Now all of a sudden we got funds. Yeah. So now we can start actually doing stuff. The following year, we raised 150. The following year, 175. Then went to 225. Every year that event built until uh, 2020. And the last we did, actually, yeah, the last Red Ranger run I think we did was 2020. That we raised about four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and then after that we switched it to Patriot Challenge, and it's yeah. declined. But this year we brought Red Ranger Run back, so we're we're trying to figure all that out. But along the way, what happened? There were a couple of things that happened. The first one was, as as we got funds, we started trying to figure out how do we become a true professional organization, and that's when we started paying for training for Gallup few staff, to yeah. get certified as life coaches. Yeah, um, to I. Initially, for the first three years of the organization's life, I didn't take a salary. Then for the next, I think, three years, I took $35,000 a year. Then the board bumped me up to 50, and then a new board chair came in and said, this is ridiculous, we need to be paid fairly. Uh, we, did a, we did a salary comparison, a nonprofit director makes like 125,000 a year. Yeah. I said, there's no way in hell. Yeah. So uh, they put me at 65. And every year since then, they've bumped me up like 3%. So now I think I'm like 79. But, and I tell everybody, you, you can go look at our text. Yeah, it will show you how much money I make. I don't hide that from anybody. One of the reasons that we do that, number one, is, you know, I put 28 hours a day into this. Yeah, right. This is your life of it. And, and it's, it's uh, I can't do this as a hobby. Either it's a professional thing or it's not a professional thing. Back in 20. Uh, 14, I got connected to the Burris Institute, and the Burris Institute does this life coaching thing called subconscious restructuring. Yeah. Subconscious restructuring is cognitive behavioral theory in a box a layperson can deliver to somebody else. If they can read a script, yeah. right, and they can hold a conversation, they can walk somebody through this process. Right. And it's examining your internal self-talk. Why can't I accomplish my goal? What do I need to do to accomplish my goal? Is the big, why can't I do it? Because there's always reasons why you can't do it, right? Yeah. These because reasons become reinforcements that 
actually holds you in failure. Mm -hmm. When you switch it to what do I need to do to you, now you're solution focused and you start trying to move forward in a way that you can actually accomplish something. That could be a whole hour long conversation by yeah. itself. So I, I want maybe you all invite me back some. Yeah, well, I haven't talked too much. And we could go through that. We talked some about that on the retreat, right? We talked yeah, yeah. About and that's, about that. that's kind of like, I get guys all the time, like, I want to do this so bad. I'm so, I'm like, I'm, my heart, I want to do it. But they don't. And it's like, well, why don't you? Like, how bad do you really want Well, it? if you ask them a question, so when you think about that thing, yeah. doing the retreat or, or following the program, what questions pop up in your mind when you think about that? When you haven't accomplished it, when you haven't attended the retreat, yeah. what is your internal self-talk? Why didn't I go to the retreat? Yeah. Well, because it costs money. Yeah. Well, I can't go because it costs money or because mama won't let me. Right. Right. Or because I've got young kids or because it's in a different state. Or be, well, all of this stuff is says, well, because of all of these reasons, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. What do I need to do to go to the retreat? You can't say because mama won't let me. You gotta be like, well, now how can I convince her to let me go? How can I find the money yeah. to go? So it's like actionable items. It's all actionable items. But you have to combine it with a vision of success at the end, mm -hmm. right? And that's without that vision of success. The humans, humans will always gravitate towards pleasure away from pain. Yep. If there was no ranger tab at the end of ranger school, I would not freaking got a radio school, right? I mean, come on. Right. Yeah, good training, but no, thanks. I yeah. got a job over here that I can do just fine without it. But because of that little freaking piece of cloth, you you destroy yourself in order to wear that thing on your uniform and call yourself a ranger. The, uh, I guess, what is it? The dopamine dump or whatever it is of that is 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 what you're chasing. You're chasing the, to, to wear that with pride. That's right. The accomplishment. The accomplishment. Yeah. So so when you think about, okay, going to this retreat and bettering your life, what does your life look like when you have bettered your life? Yeah. Is that a more pleasurable experience, vision to yourself than the pain of having to do whatever you have to do to go do the retreat? Right. Right. And if the pleasure is not greater than the pain, then you won't go to the retreat because right. it's more pleasurable to stay home. Right. Than to figure out how to raise the money or right. It's easier. Well, yeah, that, that's... It, it, that's going to cause a little bit of pleasure, right? right. And, and that's why you won't do it. So that, that whole thing, that's all rooted in the Burris, the, the way that they're mm -hmm. instruction. So, so I got certified to do that, then I got certified to certify others to do that, and we started building this team of people to provide this stuff. Along the way, I had people that would ask me, so why aren't you a counselor? Mm -hmm. And I would say, why am I not a counselor? Well, number one, because I'm old. Number two, yeah, I went to got my undergrad degree at eighteen, you know, nineteen eighty three. It's expensive. I got a full time job. I well, I got all these reasons why I'm not a counselor. It kind of makes it okay, you know. I can yeah, do this. You justify it. Yeah, but then I'm like, but what if I was? How more effective could I be if I could bring the credentials of a clinician to what we do? Yeah. Okay. What do I need to do to be a counselor? So. I didn't want to ask myself that question because I knew it would start producing yeah. answers. But I wrote, I took a post-it note and I wrote, what do I need to do to be a counselor? And I stuck it on the mirror where I see myself when I brush my teeth. Yeah. Every time I brushed my teeth, morning and night, I'd have to read that thing. And after three days, I was like, well, great. I guess I need to find out what it takes to become a counselor. So then I started investigating. I found out the process, made a phone call, got the interview with the school. The school offered me to go. I went back to the board of directors and said, what do you think? And they're like, we will pay for you to get your master's. Go. So I went full-time, 
talk about running a nonprofit for 12 hours a day and trying to go to school for 12 hours a day. Yeah. You know, just about with the master's program, it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's pretty tough. But I was able to, to complete and, and become a counselor. But there's, do we have time to divert into a couple other things? Because there's like two little sidelines I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, let me, I mean, it was a time now. Are we out of film? No, we should be good. <laughs> we should, I feel like we're good. Is this thing still on? Hold on. Oh, for the last 45 minutes, we've recorded nothing. Oh, dude, I'm t right now, this, this thing looks like it ran out of battery. I'll try to tell us quick. So the, the guy that, that helped me get my job after the military, uh, and I had known we'd been best friends like since they grade. Yeah. So he became one of the founding board members of Gallup Few. Right. And about five years in, when Reverend Ranger Run was kicking off, we we're starting to make some money, things just started to crank. He becomes chief operating officer of a construction equipment manufacturing company in Salina, Kansas. And his schedule gets really, really busy. And he's checking out. Yeah. He's not He's not being part of what we're doing. I'm asking him, you know, help us raise money, and I'm not really getting an answer. Come to board meetings, and I can't come. Yeah. And and all all through this, um, I I also had. Are you familiar with Boone Cutler and his yep. Arden Plunge? Yep. So, uh, this is, I'm trying not to get emotional. When I tell a story, but I probably will again since I've already cracked that seal. Um, he he was checked out. And so I made a phone call to the board chair, and I said, this guy is too close to me for me to say this to, but would you call him and say, you know, if your schedule is too busy and you can't be on the board, if you need to step off, that's okay. So the guy says, yeah, I'll call him. So they had that conversation. The guy calls me back next day and says, yeah, I'll talk to Bill. And Bill says, no, he, he can't be on the board now. It's too much. And I'm like, shit, I was hoping, you know, that he wouldn't say that yeah. and we would talk. And so I'm like, well, I guess, you know, it's, He's got other priorities, so right. So about six months later, I get a phone call from a mutual friend of ours, and she says, "When's the last time you talked to Bill?" And I said, "It's been a while. He he's too poor. He, he doesn't have time for me anymore." And she goes, "Yeah, you might want to give him a call because he's going through some stuff." So I call him, and and he answers the phone. I'm like, "Hey, Bill, how you doing?" And we, he said, "Not good." And it was. I could tell by the tone in his voice that something was really, really wrong. I fucking hate this guy. And uh, so, so I said, so what's going on? And uh, he didn't, at first he didn't say. And I said, are you thinking about hurting yourself? And silence. And I was like, dude. I said, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I need you? I said, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but what is going on? And he said, um, my wife's divorcing me. Um, my kids hate me. Um, I've, there's a, a bunch of reasons, but he's like, he's like, it's just, it's not worth it anymore. And I told him about the Spartan Pledge yeah. and I made him take the Spartan Pledge with me. And I was here in Dallas and the following, the following weekend, I drove to Salina and I spent a weekend with him. Took him out to lunch. I had a couple, uh, I've got some challenge coins that looked like dog tags. They're, they're thick, like challenge coins. Yeah. I should have brought one in. Yeah. I think I have one. I think I have a Spartan pledge yeah. coin. It's a heavy. It's got a, yeah. a hole in the middle, but it's numbered on the side. So it's got paired. Yes. There's there's two pairs of these. So I give him one and, uh, and we, we have a great weekend together and he tells me more about all the stuff that's going on.
but he promised me he's not going to kill himself unless he and until he calls me. Yeah. So we go back, and that started that started a thing that for about a month every day we talked on the phone, and then after that every week, and now we still. And this has been now. It's probably been six years ago that this happened, and, and we still talk on the phone every week. Yeah. Um, but about a month after that. I said, hey, I got, I got my uh, Spark Pledge coin sitting here on my desk. And he goes, I've got mine around my neck. And I'm like, you wear it on a chain around your neck? And he said, yeah. He said, because, it, and I said, that's, that's a heavy coin. He said, yeah, I know, because every time I move it, it thumps me in my breast pocket and it reminds me. And it's cool. And it was like, my best friend could kill himself. Yeah. And I would have felt responsible for not being free. And that's something that wouldn't be hard for me to live with. And, and so that, there are so many other guys out there that are like that. They know somebody they haven't talked to in a while. And maybe because they're like, well, that guy's too important for me, or that guy's got too much going on. He didn't have time for me. Yeah. It's like, pick up the freaking phone and call me. Even if you just leave a voice yeah. hey, man, I love you. I haven't talked to you in a while. Just while I was thinking about you. That, that could save somebody's life. Yeah. So it's, it's freaking super important to do that. Uh, that, was, that was huge. Um, I think it's incredible what you're doing. And his life is now amazing. Well, let's do this. This is part, you live close. So this is part oh, yeah. one. I'm going to speak a little louder just in case, but yeah. um, I'm going to get all this edited, fixed up, cleaned up, and we'll get it posted. And then uh, we'll circle back for round two because I want to get into EMDR. I want to get into the counseling side. I want to get into the path to helping guys. And so that's the next thing I want to talk about. Yep. Good? Good. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs>